our musicians for all the time and effort that they, they put into serving us so well, week in and week out. Uh, open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians 2. I'm sure most of you have heard John Lennon's song, Imagine, before at some point in your life. Um, I've always kind of found that song fascinating, and I found it fascinating because uh, it's pretty brash. Um, it, you know, it has, has pretty strong language, um, expecting peace and the expectation, you know, looking forward to that. Um, if you never heard the song before, um, the driving message of that song, it's called Imagine, is the desire that all human beings would live together in peace and harmony without fighting and war. Um, so if you've never heard it before, or if you have, let me remind you of some of the lyrics of it. I'm not going to sing it this morning, um, because that would be a disaster. Uh, but um, I'm going to put some, some of the lyrics on the screen and read those to you. Uh, imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No greed for... No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Um, you know, it was a song written, I think, in the 70s, and it's clearly been influential. Uh, you know, lots of people have embraced the, the message of this song and think that this would be a, a wonderful thing. Um, you know, you regularly hear calls for, you know, unity and can't we all just get along? Uh, and that sort of thing. Can't we all just love each other? Why, why is this so difficult for us all to come together? Um, and, it, you know, it's easy as Christians to read this. In fact, I didn't read the first verse, but it's basically, can you imagine no religion? Wouldn't it be wonderful if, you know, we could all believe there was no God above us, and so, you know, only the sky above us, and that's really what we need to come together, that sort of thing. And so it's easy for us as Christians to to read it, to hear the song with its bent against religion and its desire for unity and to, to think of this sort of utopian desire for harmony and peace and unity as, as evil and as worldly. And I, I want to try to think a little bit more carefully about it than that. Um, I actually think the desire for peace and unity and harmony is a good desire. Um, and it's, it's something that we all should hope for. <laughs> And ultimately, as Christians, that is what we do anticipate in the future, right? But the problem with, of course, the song and with the worldly hope and expectation for peace and harmony is the failure to reckon with our brokenness. I mean, we, we can't get there on our own. It's impossible. It's, it, this expectation is not based in the reality of sin and the fall of mankind, and I do think it's interesting that if you read the lyrics to this song, um, the, the worldly desire for peace and unity always comes on their terms, right? It's peace if we'll all just join John Lennon in his, right, come and join us, <laughs> you know? That's how we just follow me and we'll achieve peace, right? That's how it all comes to pass. We want peace, and in order to get it, you have to do what we say. That's how we'll get peace. And so obviously there are, there are a lot of problems here with this ideology, and we could talk about that. But the desire for peace is good, but the desire for that 
before we can get there, we have to understand why we don't have it. And we have to reckon with why we don't have it. And that's because of our, our brokenness. And once we reckon with that, then we have to say, okay, how does the Bible describe pursuing peace and unity? And what does this actually look like? What would the method be there? And it may surprise you as you're opening up or already opened up to Ephesians, but really, the book of Ephesians is, is largely based on a desire for unity and peace and harmony among people. I mean, that, this is a driving force and a driving component of the message of the book of Ephesians. And of course, in the book of Ephesians, the church is supposed to be a place of unity and of peace and the church is a place of unity so that the church can then demonstrate to the world what this really looks like. We are to be the starting point, and we're to demonstrate diverse people coming together in Christ and the reconciliation that he has brought about through his death, and we're supposed to showcase that to a watching world. Christ has brought reconciliation between us and God, of course, but also between us and one another. And this is one of the primary things Ephesians talks about. So people who are different have been brought together in Christ, and we showcase that by the way we love one another, serve one another, and by the way we live together. So last week, if you were here with us, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, we focused on personal identity. We asked the question, who are you? So as you think about yourself individually, who are you? What makes up your understanding of who you are? And we sought to answer that from, from the gospel, but from Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. But when you are rescued from your sin and you're brought into a relationship with Christ, it doesn't stop with you as an individual, you're not just saved so that you can sort of live a holy life as a, as a lone person. You are saved and placed into a body of believers. And so God ju doesn't just save individual people. He does that, but then he puts them together and he's creating a new man, a new group of people who will showcase the peace and harmony that he brings about. We'll demonstrate together the grace of God as we live with one another in, in peace and in unity. And so that's why this week we're going to ask the question you could see on the screen there, who are we? And so we've turned from individually thinking about who we are in our redemption in Christ to now what does that mean for us as a group of people? Who are we together? And so we're going to answer that question this week and then next week this way, three facets of our unified identity as a church. So three facets, three aspects, three facets of our unified identity as a church, and these facets are going to motivate us to live in peace with one another. That's the goal. I want you to see this picture of peace and unity and want it and desire it and understand that this is your responsibility as a believer in Christ to pursue this in your relationships with one another. So, the first one of these facets is found in verses 11 to 13. You have to understand this, that we were divided from one another. So as you, as you get into this, if you remember last week in verses 1 to 10, Paul sets up the whole thing by saying, this is who you were, 
In fact, just flip back and let's look there. If you weren't here with us, verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so he describes the believers in Ephesus, their former way of life. This is who you were. And so he starts there, and then he tells them, okay, now that you have met Christ, look at verse 4, but God, and here's the change that has been brought about. So here's who you were, and this is who you are now, and here are the implications of that. Well, that's the exact same thing he's going to do in verses 11 to 22. He's going to start out describing who we were together before Christ, and then he's going to tell us what has happened to bring about that change, and then next week we'll see... In verses 19 to 22, the results of that change and what we are to grow into together as the unified body of Christ. I mean, you could see in verse 11, he starts out by saying, therefore. And so he's just continuing the argument that he's, he's already been building. He's connecting this back to verses 1 to 10. And so what he's saying is, look, the personal change that you have experienced brings about community-wide implications. The personal change that you have experienced in Christ brings about community-wide implications. And so look what he wants them to do. Therefore, verse 11, remember. And this goes exactly with the whole topic of our series in the book of Ephesians, recall and react. You can see it on the banner over here. But he wants them to remember. He wants them to look back and and look at who they were before Christ. What was it like to be before Christ as a group of people? And he wants them to look back so that they can appreciate the work that Christ has done and who they are now, and they can strive to live together in unity. They were born into this condition that he's describing in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And so he identifies them. Look, physically speaking, he says you were in the flesh. You were physically born Gentiles. Now, we don't use that word Gentiles a whole lot nowadays, but what is he talking about here? Well, he's saying you're a non-Jew. There's two people, basically speaking, according to him here. There's Gentiles, those who are not Jews, and then those who are Jews. And so he's saying, you were born Gentiles. You were born as part of the Roman Empire, living in the city of Ephesus, and you were born a non-Jew. And if you, if you read the Bible, you understand that one of the sharpest conflicts between groups of people during this time was between Jews and Gentiles. And they were on opposite sides of the spectrum. The Ephesians were physically Gentiles, and that put them on the outside. They were distinct They were in conflict with Jews. And honestly, a lot of this conflict and distinctness, distinctiveness, was due to the Jews. It was due to them. I mean, look what he says in the rest of verse 1. They're called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And of course, circumcision was a sign of Israel's covenant with God. And so they valued this practice very, very much. It was an important practice for them. When a baby boy was circumcised, it showed that he was a part of the covenant that God had made with Israel. And so this was significant. This was an identity marker for them. It's how they determined who they were. And so they looked down on the Gentiles because they were not circumcised. 
You can almost see the disdain with which they said it here. They're called the uncircumcision, right? I mean, they're on the outside. And so then, as Jews and Gentiles interacted, and they would sort of live near each other or whatever, then the Gentiles would look down on the Jews, and they would hate the way that they talked about them this way and how they put them on the outside. And they would despise the Jews because they were so distinct and they were separate and they had all these laws that they had to keep that kept them from eating with Gentiles and from participating in normal cultural life. And so they were odd to them. And so there was a great division. There was distinctiveness between these two. They were kept separate and kept apart. But if you were a Gentile, this did not put you in a good situation at all. This is not the side you want to be on. Why? Well, if you read the Old Testament, the Jews were God's chosen people. He had selected them, and there were certain benefits that came along with being a Jew that the Gentiles were excluded from. They were on the outside. Look at verse 12. So he goes back. Remember, he wants them to think about this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's a great division between Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles were on the outside looking in. All of these things in in verse 12, there's five descriptions here of Gentiles. All of these were true of them, of the Ephesians. And Paul wants to remind them of these five things. What are they? Let me run through them real quick. You can follow along here. First of all, in verse 12, they were separated from Christ. What does that mean? Well, Christ is the word for Messiah. And so the Messiah was promised to the Jewish people. He would be a Jew. He would come to the Jews. And if you were a Gentile, you were excluded from that hope and expectation. You had no reason to think there would be a deliverer or a savior coming for you. But the Jews had that. Second, if you're a Gentile, you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. I mean, in the Old Testament, God did his work through his chosen people, Israel. He dealt with them. And so to be apart from that nation was a huge disadvantage to you as a Gentile. Third, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. These were covenants that God had made with Israel that he had promised certain things. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. They're made to Israel, and to be a Gentile meant you were on the outside looking in. Fourth, you were, as a Gentile, without hope, having no hope. What hope of life forever, of eternal life, of salvation from your sins, could you have as a Gentile? Because God had dealt with Israel, and he'd worked with them, and you were on the outside. And then lastly, you are without God in the world. The one true God, Yahweh, was the God of Israel. And so if you were a Gentile, you were to to be living your life without a relationship with the creator of the universe, with the creator God. So this is quite a position to be in as a Gentile. You're born into this. There's not a lot of hope for you. I mean, Paul describes it this way in Romans 9. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the Jews, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then listen to how he describes them. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. 
To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, to be a Jew didn't mean you were automatically on the inside. To be physically born as a Jew didn't mean you automatically were in. But to be a Gentile almost certainly meant that you were on on the outside. You didn't have much hope. And so Paul is reminding them of this here, of their former situation. And it's important that you understand just how drastic this was because of what he says in verse 13. Look there with me. He wants them to begin rejoicing in this truth, verse 13. But, same way that he dealt with us individually in verses 1 to 10. But, now, in Christ Jesus. It's that same language we keep seeing. In Christ, through Christ, you who were once were far off have been brought near. They were far off. That's, that's a way of describing Being born as a Gentile, physically, you were far off. You were outside and you were way outside. You didn't have much hope, but you were brought near. And that doesn't mean they were brought near to Israel here. Look what it says. They were brought near in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They weren't brought near to being a Jew. It actually means something significantly better than being ethnically and a Jew means you are in Christ. You are united with him. The blood of Christ is that which has brought you near. And what a high cost it was to bring the Gentiles near to him. And so, as you read all that, what exactly does this purchase for both Gentiles and Jews. And that's what he's going to talk about here. Three facets of our united, unified identity as a church. First of all, we were divided from one another. Second, we are reconciled to one another and to God. In verses 14 through 18. Now you've seen this picture of division here in verses 11 and 12 people who are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Now he's going to tell us, here's what the blood of Christ accomplishes in light of that division. It does two things. It reconciles us to one another. It brings Jews and Gentiles, people who are so different and so distinct, it brings them together in Christ. And then the second thing it does, you'll see in verses 16 through 18, is it brings both of us to God. It reconciles us to God. Look at verse 14. For he himself, Christ, is our peace. Now, when you read that, you're probably used to thinking in terms of peace with God, right? Jesus purchases peace with God, and that language is used other places in Scripture. There's no doubt about it. But that's not how he's using it here. Here he's talking about peace between two distinct groups of people. The death of Christ brought reconciliation between people who were once divided. So let me circle back around to that division again, all right? Verses 11, 12, you have people who are ethnically different and they're divided by their ethnicity, by their race. And they're divided by their specific religious practices. But for us, 
divisions often pop up all over the place for the most trivial things imaginable. I mean, here, their race, their religious practices, but man, divisions pop up all over the place for people, don't they? I read about one study where they flipped a coin and they put people over here on, you know, heads over here, tails over here, and then they, they gave people in those groups that they had, the most trivial thing in the world had separated them, a flip of a coin, and they gave them money and offered, said, you can give this money to someone in the group over there, or you can give it to someone in your group, and people gave it to the people in their group, just because they were a part of their group, based on the most trivial thing in the world. And there's all kinds of studies like that, and that's how we live, and that's how we act. And we make these divisions, and we put people on the inside and on the outside, and we, we hold grudges against people, and we exhibit these tribal tendencies, and we favor our own group over someone else. We tend to divide and to separate from one another in our natural fallen state. That's what we do. That's how we live. We tend to hate people who are different from us. But he says here, when you have been brought near, no matter what your background is, no matter who you were, no matter how far on the outside you were, when you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Jesus becomes our peace. What does it mean to have peace between two different groups of people? It it means two things. It means there's a lack of hostility, but it doesn't end there. It's not just a lack of hostility. It's not just avoiding hating one another. It also means a mutual acceptance and affection and love. It's the positive growth into affection for one another and desiring good for one another. That's how Jesus is our peace. The disdain goes away for people who are different from you, and you grow in affection and love for people who are different from you. Now, how exactly did Jesus accomplish this peace between Jews and Gentiles? Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there's this wall between Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus broke that down and eliminated the hostility between the two. What was the wall? Look at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And so what he means here is the Mosaic law as a covenant. The commandments The requirements of the Mosaic law are no longer the defining covenant for us today. And those were the commandments that kept Jews and Gentiles separate. And so because of what Jesus did, the law is inoperable for us. And that accomplished peace between Jews and Gentiles. Look at the rest of verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So what happens here is it's not that Gentiles become Jews, and it's not that Jews become Gentiles, and it's not that those ethnic identities don't matter anymore, that they cease to exist. It's not that who you once were is suddenly erased from how you understand yourself. 
Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, still an important feature of who you are, but it's not of primary importance anymore when you're in Christ. The law of Moses no longer prohibits Gentiles from coming in, and it no longer defines Jews. Instead, those who are in Christ have become one new man. It's amazing here. Paul uses this language in verse 15 of created. They were created. This new man was created. This new thing was begun in place of the two. Something completely new has been born. And so what has happened through Christ is people who once were divided, who once were separate, the new birth has eliminated the hostility and has brought them together and put them together in something brand new. And they have been brought together in peace. And so the death of Christ has created horizontal peace for the people in this room. But it hasn't just created horizontal peace, there's also vertical peace. Look at verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's vertical peace as well. And the hostility here is not frustration with one another because we're different. It's hostility with God. It's the the reconciliation that is needed between God and man. And that happened through the cross of Christ and through the blood of Christ. Now, what's amazing here is it wasn't just Gentiles. You would think from reading this passage that only Gentiles needed reconciliation with God, but that's not true. Look at verse 17. And he came, Christ, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. To be a Gentile was to be far off and to be a Jew was to be near, right? Like you were close. You were a partaker of the covenant. You were of the commonwealth of Israel. You expected the Messiah, but that didn't mean that you were all the way in. And so what happened through Jesus Christ is he came and preached peace to both groups. And what was ultimately needed for both groups was a new covenant, and the death of Jesus Christ provided that. Why was this needed for both groups? Why was reconciliation with God needed for both groups? Look at Romans 3.9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, are under sin. I mean, there's the problem for all of us. Gentiles didn't have the access to the benefits that the Jews did, but the Jews, in many instances, rejected the benefits that they had, and they pursued sin on their own. And so the Old Testament is quite clear Romans is quite clear that the Jewish people needed circumcision of the heart as well. They needed new hearts. And that's exactly what the new covenant promised in and through Jesus Christ. So the results of this reconciliation with God are magnificent. Look at verse 18. For through him we both... Jew, Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So now, we both, every believer, every person who's in Christ, has access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Now, what he's not saying here is that now Gentiles can go into the temple and worship the way Jews did in the Old Testament. We have something much better than that now. 
We have access to the Father through the Spirit. This morning, we have access to the Father through the Spirit. That's why I love this language in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of the blood of Jesus, we all together draw near to God the Father by the Spirit in full assurance of faith. We have confident access to God, something that no Jew had in the Old Testament and certainly no Gentile had. But I want you to notice in Hebrews, if you keep reading here, after talking about this access to the Father that we have, let me show you what that confident access means for the way you and I live our lives. And in particular, how we live our lives together. The very next verse. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And because of the access that we have, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What this means is that because together, by the Spirit, we have access to the Father, that we come, and regardless of your background, regardless of the distinctions and what were formerly divisions, regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile, black or white, man or woman, rich or poor, raised in the church, not raised in the church, happily married or a single mom, it doesn't matter. All of us are unified together in one new man and we approach the throne together. And we need one another. I mean, that's what this passage is telling us. We need one another. And so if you go back to the book of Ephesians, this idea of unity and fostering this peace and unity with one another, this is a a driving force in the book of Ephesians. This is one of the primary ways that we demonstrate that we are truly believers to one another and to an unbelieving world. This is at the core of Paul's application. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1, right? I mean, chapter 4 is where he turns and begins to apply the gospel that he's been explaining in verses 1 to 3. And look at the very first place he goes. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And man, we sort of just skip by that and go to other things. Well, how do I live as husband and wife? You know, um, how, do I, how do I work uh, as it honors the Lord in my workplace? Man, the primary application here is to pursue peace and unity with one another. Why? Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So I would say this this morning. Like as I've been getting into Ephesians more and more, I've been overwhelmed with how strong Paul is 
on this call for unity amongst believers, particularly within the local church. It's, it's been, it's a driving force in this book. And so here's what I would say, as I've been thinking about this this morning, if you are not, if I am not actively pursuing unity among the believers in this church, then I am not grasping the gospel. I don't understand the calling with which I've been called. I don't get it. Because this is what Paul says is the first and foremost application of that. When you understand the grace that you've received, you treat one another with gentleness and patience and kindness, and you pursue peace with one another. And that doesn't erase all differences, and it doesn't mean we don't ever have difficult conversations and we don't deal with one another's sin, but it does mean that because of what Christ has done for us and the grace we have received, that we can go, we can go at it and we can work hard to pursue peace and unity among one another. You know, God is certainly about saving individual people. That is true, and that is what he does. But he saves those individual people to create a new man, to create his body, the church. And he does that in order to display the glory of the work that he has done, the glory of reconciliation. So I ask myself, I ask you this this morning, how are you actively pursuing peace with others in this church body? And keep in mind, peace is not just the absence of hostility. So I pursue peace by sitting in the front right, and they sit in the back left. I'm not targeting anyone specific there, but so we just keep our distance, right? It's not just the absence of hostility. It's the building of mutual affection. It's what Hebrews says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And how can you do that unless you're together, unless you're meeting together as the body? And so we're going to look in more detail at how we pursue this unity, because that's where he goes at the end of this passage. So he lays out this whole case for unity and peace, and then look at verse 19. So then... Right? So now he's going to turn the corner. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then look down at the end of verse 22. In him, you also are being built. Right? There's an ongoing aspect to this. You are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so we'll, we'll look at that next week and we'll talk more specifically about it, what it means to be the church, a unified church based on the work that Christ has done. Now we all have equal access to the Father by the Spirit and we come together to rejoice in that and to, to encourage one another in that reality. So I'm looking forward to that, but let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the reconciliation we have with you, no doubt about it. That is the primary thing. But here, Paul is driving home this point that because of that reconciliation with you, we are united with one another. We are in Christ together with one another. And so I pray that you would help us to, to think carefully about how we can pursue the end of hostility with one another, if it's there, and the, the growth of mutual affection for one another. 
Give us this grace. Help us to live as you have called us to live and to walk worthy of that calling. Thank you for all you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.